Welcome to Momentum for Change, Voices of the Missouri Movement. This is a monthly podcast produced by your coalition, and I am your host, Nora Mosby, a member services specialist at the Missouri Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. We hope you enjoy this conversation coming to you from Voices of the Missouri Movement. Welcome to season three of Momentum for Change. This is your host, Nora Mosby, and Momentum for Change is a podcast brought to you by the Missouri Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence in order to lift up voices of the Missouri movement. Not only is this the first episode of season three, but we also have updated the name of the podcast to first of all, make it a little bit easier to find. It turns out that there are a lot of podcasts out there that use the word momentum in their title. So we've updated the name to make it easier to find and also to better reflect the work that we do for social change specifically to support survivors and end rape and abuse by shining a light on the incredible voices that are making it happen here in Missouri. Our new name also aligns with our public policy tagline, We Change Lives, We Change. I'm sorry, We Change Laws, We Change Lives. Um, And so the new name for the Momentum podcast is Momentum for Change, Voices of the Missouri Movement. You'll notice some other small changes too. The podcast will have a new intro and outro, as well as new graphics on our title page. So January begins a new season for this podcast. And MOCADSV is thrilled to bring you monthly discussions throughout 2024 related to advocacy services, prevention, public policy, and other related topics that are happening here in Missouri. As many of our listeners are aware, January is the National Stocking Awareness Month. And in recognition of this, I am so happy to be joined today by Dana Lightman, the training Um, an awareness specialist at the Stalking Prevention and Awareness Resource Center, or SPARC for short. Dana, welcome to Momentum for Change. We're so happy to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk stalking with you. Um, I am as well. So as we're starting our stock talk, can you tell me um, about SPARC and what it is that you all do? Sure. Um, So we are, like you said, the Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center, or SPARC for short, a project of Equitas. And basically our job is to help the helpers. And so we don't do direct services for victims or survivors of stalking, but we help those who do. So we're the national training provider on stalking. And so from the funded by the Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women. So if you're familiar with that model, basically there's, you know, grantees all across the country that can include campuses, law enforcement, victim service agencies, really anyone on the criminal justice or the victim services end of helping to keep victims safe and hold offenders accountable. Um, And so our job is to provide those folks with the training and resources that they need to better do that. And so that's a really wide range of resources and training. So we do a lot of trainings. We're on the road quite a bit, but we have everything from you know, a guide for judicial officers, um, to checklists for law enforcement, to public awareness materials for someone maybe working on a campus who is doing, you know, incorporating stalking into a program on, say, consent or healthy relationships. Um, And we also lead the efforts on National Stalking Awareness Month every January and produce campaign materials for that. And so, There's always more work to be done and and we're busy, but really the people who are actually on the ground doing the work are the ones making it happen. And those are the folks that we are 
training. Um, so we primarily train law enforcement, um, campuses, and victim services. But again, anyone anyone who's involved on the response, uh, we can train. So, and we try to develop resources for them too outside of the training. I think this is a movement that really values continuing education. And it's so important because things are always changing. Um, we always have new resources. There's always new laws. And so I'm so thankful to have kind of national technical assistance providers that can help support our work um, to support survivors in our local communities. So thanks so much for that. How long has Spark been around and how long have you been working with Spark? So Spark is relatively new. Um, we were funded I forget when the grant came out, but we really started in 2018. Um, now, before Spark, there was the Stalking Resource Center housed at the National Center for Victims of Crime. And so, um, but Spark in its current iteration at Equitas has been around since about 2018. And that's when I started as well. So it was our director, Jennifer Landheis, and I was the first person brought on, which I'm very grateful for. And so I've been there now almost six years and our team is still small but mighty um but has grown past the two of us which has been really exciting to see um and so i mean there's so much need in this area i can tell you anecdotally that you know i do trainings all across the country and usually i start by asking folks is this the first time you've had the opportunity to attend a training specifically on the topic of stalking so you're not one where stalking was kind of added on but one that we're just we're actually just talking about stalking today and usually it's half to the whole room, uh, even seasoned professionals who have a lot of experience and are doing great work in our field. And that's not a reflection on them as professionals, but it is a reflection that stalking is so undertrained and under-resourced. And when you think about it, you know, there's no national stalking hotline. There are few, if any, standalone stalking crisis centers. Um there's not a lot of folks who, you know, quote unquote, specialize in stalking, right? It's often added on to those other things. And one thing we always say is we want to remember there are four major crimes under the Violence Against Women Act. It's domestic violence, sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking. But it's always kind of like and stalking. Um, we almost called our website andstalking.org. Because uh, we're like, people are like, oh, yeah, and stalking. We kind of cover that, too. It's like in with the other stuff, you know. But the reality is that stalking is its own victimization, as well as one that often intersects with intimate partner and sexual violence. It's something that victims and survivors are experiencing at similar rates to those other victimizations, but there are very few resources and it's hard to know what door to walk into because you can't just call the stalking hotline, right? Um, or go to stalking crisis center. And so it really falls to folks like, my assumption is a lot of the listeners of this podcast who are often primarily focused on domestic and or sexual violence, which are big victimizations with plenty of work to do. So you're already busy and your plate is full and I understand that. Um, but our pitch is to really add stalking on and I'm not saying that's easy or fair, but I am saying that's necessary because these victims and survivors really have nowhere else to go. And so our job at Spark is to make that, I won't say easy, but as easy as possible by giving you very concrete tools, trainings, and resources so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So that if we're saying you should have a stalking brochure, for example, you can order one for free from our website, right? If we're saying... Um, you know, you should really be screening folks for stalking. We have the screening questions. And so, and we're always looking for more ideas of what to develop to help you better do your work. So never hesitate to reach out and say, I'd like to talk through a specific situation or here's something that would help me in my work because that's that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, here in Missouri, we, we really don't have uh, standalone stalking 
resource center and certainly not a, a shelter just for survivors of stalking, even though we know that survivors of stalking absolutely need services and support. Um, and I worked in direct services for a number of years before I started working at the coalition um, at domestic and sexual violence advocacy uh, organizations. And I have to say, I dealt with stalking all of the time. It was just so, so common. And I think DV and SV service providers are serving survivors of stalking a lot, all the time. Um, so it's so helpful to have you here on our podcast to share this information with our listeners. Um, and as we're starting our conversation, I just think that words matter so much. Words are so important. And starting off with just kind of a common definition of stalking is really helpful for us to understand the issue and to know how to respond to survivors as they are seeking services from our member organizations. So how do you all define stalking at SPARC and um, why do you use that particular definition? Sure. So, of course, every jurisdiction has a different stalking statute to make it fun, right? And so it's good to know yours as well as neighboring jurisdictions because by definition, often stalkers travel, right? They might follow someone. It could easily become an interjurisdictional issue. Um, but the behavioral definition that we use, which for anyone working on campus, this is the same as the one in Cleary and Title IX. So behaviorally, stalking is a pattern of behavior directed at a specific person that would cause a reasonable person to feel fear and or emotional distress. Um, so that's fear for the safety of themselves or others and or emotional distress more generally. So to break that down a little bit, it's a pattern of behavior. Uh, it's also known as a course of conduct in most stalking statutes. So you might hear me use those terms kind of interchangeably, pattern of behavior, course of conduct. I'm talking about the same thing. It's typically two or more behaviors that make up that pattern. In a couple jurisdictions, it's three or more, but behaviorally and almost everywhere, it's two or more behaviors. And those behaviors can be quite varied. And so um, let's say Monday, I, let's say I'm stalking you because I'm the worst podcast guest ever. Okay, so maybe Monday I text you, Tuesday I'm mad you didn't respond, I smash your headlights, Wednesday I feel a little bad about that, so I send you flowers. All of those are stalking behaviors, right? And so stalkers often combine behaviors that are crimes on their own, like that property damage, with other behaviors that may not be crimes on their own, but can become criminal in the context of a stalking case. So that can be quite confusing because it's not illegal to text somebody, right? Or to send somebody a gift, but it is illegal to stalk somebody. And so it's really about zooming out and looking past the individual incident. And that's so often where our stalking cases and response get stuck because our system tends to be pretty incident-based. We're responding to an incident. And so I always encourage folks, if a victim is telling you about any upsetting incident, to really zoom out and be thinking, is this an isolated incident? Is this part of a bigger pattern of behavior? Because a victim telling you about, say, their smashed headlights may or may not think to automatically disclose to you, oh, I know who did this and they've been texting me a lot. And I'm getting weird packages in the mail. And my phone's been acting weird. I think they hacked in there because they're thinking, oh, that's not relevant. That's not what we're talking about. But it needs to be relevant because it's letting you know, oh, this is actually a course of conduct and this could actually be a stalking case, right? So it's a pattern of behavior and it's directed at a specific person or persons. And so it's not random or not to minimize voyeurism, but like just random voyeurism, right? So if someone say, peeks into a women's locker room to see whoever happens to be in there undressing. That might still be a crime, but that's not really stalking. 
it could become stalking. Let's say they follow someone specific out of there and contact her. Okay, now it is directed at someone specific, right? Um, and we have two or more behaviors. And so all of those can be part of it, but it's it's directed at a specific person or persons. And it would cause a reasonable person to feel fear and or suffer substantial emotional distress. So fear is really important to understanding stalking and it's behaviorally what separates stalking from a victimization it's often confused with, which is harassment. So a lot of times, and I'm speaking behaviorally here, your statutes will vary, but harassment is typically that repeated behavior that would make someone feel frustrated, angry, annoyed, create a hostile environment, disrespected, right? And harassment can be quite serious. I'm not trying to minimize it, but it's not necessarily scary. When we're talking about stalking, we're generally talking more about fear and that someone feels they cannot live a normal life because of the interference from the stalker. So if my supervisor is, say, emailing me at three in the morning and then um, yelling at me in front of the staff, calling me names because I was two minutes late, like, I hate her and she's the worst and it's not okay. I'm not actually afraid of her. I'm just like, wow, she's really, that's not okay. Like, this is really disrespectful. This is hostile. I don't like this. But let's say that I'm driving home. I think I see her car a couple back. She texts me a picture of myself walking my pug. Says, why are you doing that instead of working? She emails my husband. I don't know how she got his email. Now I'm scared, right? I'm like, oh, this person seems very fixated on me. What's her end game here? Is she going to hurt me or something? Like, what does she want, right? And so harassment can become part of a stalking course of conduct or kind of become stalking, but they're a little bit distinct. Um, and it might even be the more strategic charge, depending where you are and the language of your statute. But I think that's important because I think a lot of times people think of stalking really as harassment. So they're thinking, oh, it's annoying and someone's bothering you, but no one's really getting hurt here. And that's simply not true of our stalking cases, which often do intersect with physical violence and really are keeping people from leading normal lives. So when we think about fear, fear of what? And this is where statutes vary quite a bit. So fear of bodily harm and physical violence, right? Of course, that's stalking. But our behavioral definition, as well as many statutes, and in the second degree in Missouri as well, include more this sense of emotional distress. And so um, emotional distress is also about fear. It's not like a touchy-feely term, right? But it's just recognizing folks might be afraid of something other than or in addition to physical violence. So maybe you're afraid of losing custody of your children. Maybe you're afraid of never having a moment alone again, right? That's fear. It's not just annoyance, right? And so we would consider that part of a stalking case. Um, people experiencing emotional distress often feel that they're under surveillance, that their life is being invaded, that they're being sabotaged, that they're being threatened. The best quote I saw about it was a victim who said, it's like he's taken my life without killing me. So that sense of I cannot have a normal life because of the interference from the stalker. That's what we're talking about when we talk about emotional distress. And I think sometimes folks think that's like a touchy-feely term, like, oh, someone had a bad day. It's like, no, this is about I, I can't live a normal life, right? Um, and so long, I was going to say long story short, too late, but <laughs> yeah, that's uh, stalking, pattern of behavior, two or more, directed at a specific person or persons. So it's they're targeting someone specific that would cause a reasonable person to feel fear for their safety or the safety of others and or suffer substantial emotional distress. There's so many incredible points that you just made there. So thank you for that explanation. That was super helpful. And I think one thing that is standing out to me about your um, definition um, and the behaviors that you're describing is that element of fear or emotional distress. 
And so one issue that I've heard Spark talk about quite a bit is how stalking is normalized in our culture. Um, people will say, oh, I was stalking so-and-so on Facebook or social media. But there's not that element of fear there that they're talking about. And it's not truly stalking. Um, when we're talking about stalking, we're talking about a pattern of behavior that is really fearful or um, causing emotional distress. So can you talk more about that normalization that happens every day, all the time, and why that's a problem for this issue? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I always want to start by saying the casual use of the word stalking is not causing stalking, right? Uh, no one is, which is not what you're saying at all. But, you know, I think sometimes folks who focus on the language can get kind of frustrated, like, well, that's not the real problem. And I'm like, well, there's lots of real problems. Um, but <laughs> I do think that it has an impact, which I'll talk about in a second. But yeah, no one's hearing that and then deciding that it's okay to stalk based on hearing someone, you know, joke about the word stalking one time. Um, but I think it is very pervasive and it gets into our vocabulary. And so people are calling things stalking when they aren't. And then they're not calling it stalking when it is actually stalking. And of course, we know that most victims and survivors, they tell friends or family first, right? And so how does that person respond? Um, and it can, I think stalking and the casual use of it is a little bit unique in our field and kind of even in more, um, you know, sensitive spaces at this point. Like no one says, oh man, that party was so lit. It's arson, <laughs> right? That's not a thing. If you tell your friend, I think there was arson at my apartment last week, they're going to be like, <laughs> dude, there was arson. You got to call the police. Are you okay? There was arson. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But if you tell your friend, I think it might be stalking, you're likely to get this response of like, okay, but is it stalking or is it stalking? Right? Yeah. yeah. And that can have a really chilling effect on if victims take this seriously, if they continue to seek services, if they know where to go. Um, and so I think that it does have that impact where people are coming in thinking they know more about stalking than they do because they've heard the term and they've kind of seen it in the media and they're not coming in with zero knowledge, but they've actually been miseducated on what it is. And so it creates a sense that this is not that big a deal, that it's just something that's annoying, that no one's really getting hurt here. Um, and that's not accurate to stalking victimization. And so I do think that, you know, the casual use of that term is a problem um, because of that. And because of, I think at this point, somewhat the uniqueness of sort of minimizing what that is. And so um, I'm doing a webinar at the end of January about normalization of stalking and media normalization, which I'm excited about because I think that stuff is so interesting and fun. Um, and so we have some alternatives to suggest for folks like, are you stalking them? Or if you're trying to say you're contacting them a lot, are you nagging them? Are you sorry to bother you? Sorry to ask you this again. Um, if you're, if you met someone cool and you Googled them one time, that's probably not scary, right? And so you can say that, right? You can say like, oh, I Googled you one time because I thought you were interesting. And here's what I found. Um, or, oh, you know, I didn't mean to run into you like this. I don't, I'm not following you or anything. I just, you know, oh, what a coincidence. You know, like there's other, there's realistic ways that you can change that language that I think um, matter. But I think between the casual use of the word stalking, as well as just the ways that we see stalking presented in media and stalking behaviors shown often as romantic or funny or desirable in some way, again, there's no piece of media that is causing stalking, but I do think there's a cumulative effect. Um, and I'd argue the cumulative effect of all this different media that shows stalking in these different ways is that it creates kind of a fantasy of stalking. And the fantasy version of stalking is that 
the stalker is an attractive stranger or like a meet cute situation um, or someone who's desirable, that their intentions are good, that they just want to impress us or, you know, charm us in some way or show their love, um, that the target should feel flattered or at worst, it's a little bit awkward. Like it's, it's often played for last. So it's either silly or it's like really chivalrous, but it's somewhere on that spectrum. Um, and that the outcome is good. And that's not what stalking really is, right? Stalking is scary by definition. The majority of victims know their offenders, over 80%, and most offenders are intimate partners, ex-partners, or acquaintances. So they're people we know that we do not want to continue to contact us who are intentionally disrespecting our boundaries. They are often violent. It often intersects with intimate partner and sexual violence. They want to scare us. That is their intention. Um, and victims are terrified. One in seven stalking victims relocate to get away from the offender, right? Think how annoying it is to move when you want to move. And mm -hmm. we have one in seven victims really relocating. Victims change their lives to get away from these people because it's terrifying. Um, and there's a huge connection with violence as well as homicide. And so I think that, again, the cumulative effect of that normalization is that stalking is really minimized and seen as not very urgent. And that's what I often see really running throughout the response. Um, and I mean, the informal and the formal response, criminal justice and victim services is this lack of urgency. And I think that the normalization does contribute to that. Absolutely. So I hear you saying um, one of the issues is that, you know, we know that stalking causes fear, um, causes emotional distress. And so we know it causes harm on survivors, but when it is uh, normalized, kind of that harm is minimized as well. And so then survivors are less likely not only to seek support from service providers, um, but also to seek support from law enforcement. And we know stalking is against the law. Um, so another issue that I picked up on as you were talking about the definition of stalking was um, the context matters. When we just look at these individual isolated events, we might be looking at stalking behaviors that are not criminal acts um, in and of themselves. But when you look at it as the pattern um, or within the context of the relationship, we can see the fear or emotional distress that is being caused by these behaviors. So can you talk more about why context is so critical when we're talking about uh, stalking? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we always say context is key. We have a quarterly webinar called that because I think the contextual nature of stalking is so critical to understand. And it's something that once explained, folks get, but, um, you know, it's just not always explained. So I think ex examples can be helpful, right? So like there was um, a case where a victim did call the police and she was hysterical. She's yelling, she's screaming, she's really upset. And all she'd say was, there's a cup of coffee in my car. So understandably, police are not setting out the SWAT team, right? They're kind of like, okay, lady, thanks for letting us know. Um, and eventually she calmed down enough and said, he's here. So it turned out there was a stalking survivor who had relocated to get away from the offender, address confidentiality, new job, really thought she'd covered her tracks. She leaves to go to work. She gets in her car. There was a cup of coffee with his old nickname for her on it. So I see you shaking your head. And often when I tell that story, I get people going like, Ugh, right? Because and what that tells me is a reasonable person would feel fear. It's very scary when you know the whole story. But if all you see is this object of a cup of coffee in a car, 
We're like, I don't know, it's cold. I wish my car did that. You know, we don't understand what the problem is. And so that context is so critical. And of course, this isn't only in stalking. We see this with our domestic violence and sexual violence cases as well, where we know that a certain look from an offender or, you know, song lyric or some kind of symbol, the victim understands loud and clear as a threat, but to outsiders, it it doesn't look like much and it needs a little bit more explanation. And so something may be scary to the victim, but not to the responder. And so what we suggest is that, you know, you respectfully ask them some follow-up questions, ask questions like, what message did that send to you? What's the story behind that? Because if they're afraid, there's probably a reason, right? They probably know something that we don't, that they haven't been able to articulate yet. There's no better risk assessment than a victim's own fear and distress. So if a victim's very afraid, even if you're looking at the situation and saying, huh, I don't know, it's just a few text messages. I don't really get the big deal. Um, they probably know something we don't, right? And we need to do a little digging and, and get that information because that's often how stalkers get away with these behaviors is that they engage in primarily these contextual behaviors that victims, again, loud and clear are threatened by, um, but that may seem trivial to outsiders and or hard to prove or believe. So for example, one common stalker behavior is to break into a victim's vehicle or home and not take or break anything, but just leave some sign they've been there, right? So maybe they move a lamp um, or they turn the TV on a channel they used to watch together. So when the victim gets, let's say, home, they know that offender has been there. But they're like, what am I going to do? Call the police and say someone moved a lamp? I'm going to sound crazy, right. right? And offenders know that. That's why they do that. In fact, one in five stalking victims reported that exact behavior. Offender breaking into home or vehicle and just leaving some sign they've been there. So if a victim ever says, I know it sounds crazy, but that's a red flag. This might be a stalking case. And I always tell law enforcement, I'm not saying don't investigate it, but I'm saying let's investigate it. Because these stalkers really do these difficult and kind of outlandish behaviors in order to try to scare their victims. Like I've seen so many cases where offenders do things like this one, he drove 300 miles to carve his ex's name in trees near her new home. Like you're, where you're just, you want to just say, no, no one would do that. Unfortunately they would. <laughs> Stalkers would and do do that. And so, you know, we always want to uh, believe our victims and go from there um, both in considering huh, this might be scarier than it appears on the surface, as well as even if it sounds like that's just too much work for someone to do. Ooh, unfortunately, stalkers are often doing that work. And so we want to believe our victims and go from there. A lot of these acts that you were talking about um, not only cause fear, but I think also recall kind of a, an urgency to those feelings of fear. And so um, I was kind of thinking about these acts are actually a timestamp for when that stalker was there or when they perpetrated that behavior. I was imagining as you were talking about the cup of coffee, if that cup of coffee was still hot, that would be so scary because then you would know that that um, stalker had recently left that cup of coffee. So I love what you said, and I just want to highlight it. Um, when you said there is no better risk assessment than a victim's fear and distress. I think that's such an important point. Um, and then uh, when we were talking about context, I was just thinking about how if advocates really understand that context is essential, context is key, then really understanding kind of the full range of what has happened is really important. And so um, if, if you're coming from this idea that context is important to understand what's happening with stalking, we need to ask questions. 
we can use those questions to understand the context as a tool in our advocacy services. Um, so one thing that I think comes that's really important to our work is that, uh, you know, stalking often occurs in um, relationships where there's intimate partner violence. Um, and then stalking can also happen either um, leading up to sexual assault or, um, you know, um, as part of the, the sexual assault that happens. Um, and then, of course, we know that intimate partner violence, stalking, sexual um, violence can all occur within the same relationship. Um, and so as advocates, I think we need to be prepared not only to support survivors who are experiencing sexual assault within an intimate partner violence relationship, but also stalking because these three issues are so intersected. Um, of course, we could probably write a book and have a whole conference just on the intersections of intimate partner violence, um, sexual violence and stalking, but can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between these issues and how advocates at anti-violence organizations can best support survivors who are experiencing um, these issues at the intersections? Yeah, I'm so glad you raised that because, of course, like you said, stalking is a traumatic victimization and a crime in its own right. And it often intersects with intimate partner violence, sexual violence, and even homicide. And just to kind of you know, top bullet point when we think about stalking and violence, um, generally, I mean, the vast majority of intimate partner homicides, there was stalking the year prior to that homicide or attempted homicide. Um, stalking increases the risk of intimate partner homicide by three times. And stalking also often intersects, again, with other kinds of violence. One in five stalkers use weapons to threaten or harm their victims. And the stalking victims are terrified. And so we... Uh, so often quote a, a wonderful researcher, we work with Patrick Brady, who said that stalking is homicide in slow motion. These behaviors and tactics adding up and escalating over time. And so too often what happens is that we wait for the violence and look backwards. And at that point, folks are saying, oh, look, there was stalking this whole time. We don't want to do that. We want to identify the stalking while it's happening and intervene then, because this is one of the few victimizations where early identification and intervention can help prevent further trauma, violence, and possibly even homicide, right? And so we want to be, like you said, looking at those markers, not only of time in terms of if the coffee's still warm, which I also, yes, that creeped me out and I liked it, um, but you know that what are these intervention points and really seeing them that way, because too often it's this after violence analysis. And there's no reason for that because this is actually a crime that we can take seriously while it's escalating. Um, in terms of the intersection with intimate partner and sexual violence, and like you said, of course, those all intersect quite a bit, but to take them separately a little bit. So if we think about intimate partner violence and you know our friend, the power and control wheel and all the different kinds of abuse, um, a lot of times folks will say something like, okay, it was an abusive relationship and the day the victim left, that abuser began stalking them. And that can totally happen, right? But let's take a step back. If during the relationship, our abuser is contacting them constantly, um, threatening them, following them, showing up at work, showing up in school, asking friends and family where they are, insisting they share their location, that's stalking, right? It's intimate partner violence. It's what we might call emotional abuse, digital abuse, or coercive control, and it's stalking. It is those things. It is emotional abuse, right? And it's stalking. It's both. And we really want to call it that for a few reasons. One is that our 
Intuit partners who stalk tend to be our most dangerous stalkers on average. It increases the likelihood that they will engage in violence. Um, and so we want to know when that's happening so we can see that elevated risk, right? If we just call it emotional abuse or digital abuse, we miss that red flag that, oh, this person's more likely to um, commit physical and or sexual violence. And we have multiple studies confirming that, that you can go to our website and check out. But for example, that, you know, our abusers who have protective orders who continue to stalk after are much more likely to commit a range of violent behaviors, right? Because those tend to be our most persistent offenders. I think that makes sense intuitively. Like, oh, yes, people who are not deterred by the intervention and continue to stalk are likely to be more dangerous, but it's often not named as stalking. And so people talk about it as, oh, it was emotionally abusive and they left and now there's like separation abuse or there's... um you know, it's an ugly divorce or something like that. And it, it, it's not that it's not those things, but it's also stalking. And we want to know that because having naming that term escalates the issue and is a red flag that this offender is more likely to be physically and sexually violent. And so I think it's important that we call it stalking and that we call it stalking during and or after the relationship. Also, that has the opportunity to criminalize behaviors that are otherwise not criminal. It's not criminal to be emotionally abusive generally. But it is criminal to stalk somebody. And so that can be really helpful to build that course of conduct, which might be starting before or during the relationship. Um, mm -hmm. Violence, it could be before the sexual assault. Maybe the stalker's engaging in surveillance. They're doing their research to see who is vulnerable and when can they access them? When is that person alone? Who seems like they won't have a lot of credibility, right? So they're really engaging in stalking to choose a victim and or to figure out when to most strategically approach a victim and, and um, facilitate the assault. Uh, we can also see sexual violence happening just at any point, right? At any point in the course of conduct, it could be that the threats are of a sexual nature or use sexual language. We often see sexual crimes and or behaviors that are part of the stalker's course of conduct, like voyeurism, um, like non-consensual distribution of intimate images, right? Also known as revenge porn, which we don't love that because we don't it's not really about revenge. It's not really porn. But I understand that non-consensual distribution of intimate images is a lot to say. But, you know, we often see that as part of a stalking case. So really, again, just like with those other behaviors, you want to zoom out and be thinking, is this an isolated incident? Is it part of a bigger pattern of behavior? Um, and we sometimes see stalking after the sexual violence. So uh, to intimidate the person out of reporting, for example. So it might say, hey, if you tell anyone, I'm going to release these photos or, you know, oh, did you tell this person? Did you tell that person or showing up at the person's home um, and or to reinforce the trauma of the assault? So like there was a case where an offender sexually assaulted the victim using an object and then kept mailing that object to the victim's home. So to add to the trauma and to threaten them, essentially. And so we see all of those different intersections. We can also see stalking as grooming for sexual violence and look at it through that context because it's, you know, choosing someone strategically, making multiple contacts with the intent to commit that assault. So stalking for sexual violence can look overtly scary. Like we have cases, there's a pretty well-known one, a little bit dated, but we're an offender impersonated the victim and went on Craigslist and posted like a rape ad um, where they said, oh, I have this violent rape fantasy. And if someone rapes, you know, that's what I want. And here's what I look like. And here's where I live. And so unfortunately, someone did respond to that ad. Um, 
And so that could be part of a stalking case, right? The soliciting third-party sexual violence, which we do see increasingly, especially through dating apps and, and social media profiles where they impersonate the victim and then facilitate sexual violence. So it could look very overtly scary like that. Um, or it could be that more, you know, you seem so mature for your age. Hey, can I come over? I think you're really cool. That kind of stuff could also be stalking because at any, you know, there's no point there's no statute that says when fear has to attach. So if you have a victim saying, well, I wasn't scared on day one when they sent me flowers and said I seemed so sophisticated, I was flattered. But now that I look back and realize the entire relationship was a setup for my sexual assault and it all started with that text message, that could still be stalking, right? And so um, it's really just naming stalking in all of those different scenarios where strategic, which sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But when we're thinking about our criminal justice process, um, it can be helpful to name and also just to help victims name what they're experiencing, that it's not just someone's being annoying or, you know, that someone's bugging you. It's that, no, you're experiencing stalking and that's a real victimization and there are resources available and other people experience this. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> again, I feel badly. I talk forever about all things. We also do have resources on our website that include more like an infographic fact sheet and recorded webinars on the intersection of stalking and sexual violence, as well as stalking and into a partner violence. So if we focus on those intersections, particularly during October and April, but all year round, of course, because it's so relevant. Um, and so you know, what we'd say is for really anyone that you're screening, like ask them, absolutely ask your stalking victims about intimate partner sexual violence victimization, but also ask your victims who are primarily presenting at intimate partner violence or sexual assault survivors, ask them about stalking victimization, because so often that is left out of the conversation and then we're not getting the full scope of the victimization. We can't safety plan as effectively and comprehensively. And we might be missing some opportunities for offender accountability as well, right? And so we definitely wanna be naming that. Um, and I mean, there's so many, I'm trying to think if there's any like, I don't know why I'm blanking on statistics right now, but I think one in three victims who are stalked by an intimate partner are also sexually assaulted by that partner. Right. Wow. And so that relationship is significant in terms of and it's not only sexual assault. Other studies show they're more likely to experience um, sexual degradation and forced substance use during sex. And, you know, so it's just all of these victimizations, unfortunately, really add to each other and can make it so much more of a traumatic and dangerous situation. One thing I want to add on to is I keep saying, ask about stalking, ask about stalking. And you might be like, okay, Dana, I have a lot of things to talk about. Okay. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Um, and so there is actually a risk assessment specific to stalking. That's wonderful. It's free. It's online. It's called the Stalking and Harassment Assessment and Risk Profile or SHARP. It's by this wonderful researcher, TK Logan. You can get to it from our website or at coercivecontrol.org. Um, it takes about 10, 15 minutes, and it just asks a bunch of questions. Has this happened? Has that happened? How are you feeling about this? How are you feeling about that? And then it creates a risk assessment. It looks at 14 risk factors. And we'll say, okay, based on what you shared, you have you know, a low, medium, high risk of danger here, and here's why. Um, and it also creates some safety planning suggestions. If you don't have time for all of that, we also have like four questions to ask that really just capture, help to capture the course of conduct. And so those are on our website as well. But we look at these four major categories of stalking behaviors, and these are also by TK Logan. So we look at surveillance. So because typically surveillance, life invasion, um, 
interference through sabotage or attack, and intimidation. And so I won't go through all of those, but the, the reasoning is that just like with domestic violence, often if you ask a victim, are you experiencing stalking? Like, no, it's not stalking. Come on now, calm down, right? But if you ask these more specific questions, has any, have they engaged in surveillance behavior? And then give some examples. Like, um, do you feel like someone's watching you? Are they following you? Has there been excessive contact? And they're, oh, I don't know if there's been excessive contact. I mean, they text me all the time. Oh, they're texting me right now. Take a look, right? So if you break it down in those ways, you're more likely to get more information on what they're experiencing. And then ask about their reaction. Did that make you feel fearful? Um, or emotionally distressed? Do you, have you made changes to your life as a result of the stalking behavior? And we find that's often really helpful to know because victims often minimize the impact, right? So, oh, I'm not scared. I'm fine. It's no big deal. But then asking them, you know, have you done anything like, um, I, you know, oh yeah, well, I, you know, I blocked their phone number and I changed my phone number actually because it just they keep seeming to find it. I changed my email. I used to share my location. Now I don't. I stayed with a friend last night because I just had a weird vibe at my apartment. I carry pepper spray now. Right? Those are all indicators of fear, emotional distress. That's really evidence of fear and distress. And so asking about those accommodations, and I'm not saying victims should or should not make those changes. I'm just saying most of them do make some kind of change. And that can be helpful for you to assess how is this affecting this victim or survivor's life? And also ask if they're afraid about impact socially and or violence towards others. So many victims say, oh, well, it's just me, it's fine, but I'm really worried they'll hurt my pet or my friend or my colleague, or they're showing up at work and that's really embarrassing. Um, and so... Yeah, all that to say, you don't need to remember these things. You can go to our website under risk assessment, and we have the short version and the long version uh, linked to at, at the at the website. But those are very concrete tools that you can use um, to make sure you're assessing for that stalking victimization and responding appropriately. So definitely recommend those. I'll put the links to those resources on the show notes of this episode. And I also wanted to mention when I was an advocate, I think it was really helpful to encourage survivors. Um, to document kind of the incidents that they're happening because you might not recognize those individual behaviors as stalking. And you all have some really great stalking logs on your website too that I can link in our show notes as well. So January is the National uh, Stalking Awareness Month. Yay. Can you tell us about kind of the, aware, the role that awareness plays in your work at SPARC and what you're hoping to achieve this, this year with stalking, the National Stalking Awareness Month? Absolutely. Yeah. January is National Stalking Awareness Month. I am very excited about it and delighted that you're releasing this episode in January, everyone's favorite month and the best way to start the oh. year. I mean, it's always Stalking Awareness Month to me, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's good to have that time to really just focus on it. Um, and so I think it can be easy in our field because we're dealing with such such heavy content and so much suffering to kind of look at awareness and be like, ugh, awareness. You know, <laughs> like, what? Well, what's the point of this? Um, and while there's no one solution to all of stalking, if there was, I would just have done that already. And I'm sure you would have too. Um, I'd argue that actually stalking awareness is really important because within our field, many people are not thinking about stalking on a daily basis. Like that's the reality of the situation. And so even some very low level things like having a stalking brochure in your office, having the word stalking so that when your survivor is in the waiting room, oh, maybe that's what's going on, right? Even that is a game changer um, because we kind of where we are with stalking, where we were with domestic violence, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, where at least that's our opinion at Spark, where folks just aren't as aware of it. They minimize it. They see it as private or personal and they just don't really take it that seriously. And I think when you look at the 
Of course, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of the general response to domestic and sexual violence, both um, officially in the field as well as that informal. But if we're thinking about that kind of informal national dialogue, you know, our com national conversation about intimate partner violence and certainly sexual violence has changed, right? It's evolved. Um, it's become more nuanced. It's become less accepting of sexual violence. But we don't often see stalking included in that dialogue. Like if we think about the Me Too movement, stalking's not really included, even though one in three women and one in six men are experiencing stalking victimization. So, you know, it, it's it's not to take anything away from those other issues, but we don't want stalking to be kind of left behind because it's so related to those other issues and one that other people, uh, I'm sorry, and one that victims are experiencing at similar rates. And so when I think about our conversations about consent and about um, gender norms and entitlement and bystander intervention, we really want stalking to also be front and center in those conversations. And too often it is not. And so, and we know it goes hand in hand, the increased response and the increased kind of demand for that response, right? When there's a general public attitude of, hey, this is serious. This isn't okay. We need to do something about this. We do see more attention paid to that issue. And so that hasn't quite happened on a big scale with stalking yet, but I think it will. Um, and of course, we're working on it, right? So we're seeing that kind of increase in awareness. But yeah, I'd love to... And, I think there's some very concrete things that could happen if that was achieved. For example, I talked about stalking in the media a little bit earlier and just thinking about some indicators of that lack of seriousness around stalking. Like if you see an episode of TV where there's a sexual assault, you're likely to see something pop up at the end. It's like, hey, if you experience sexual assault, call this number. We don't have that for stalking. We just have the misinformation and normalization and no counterbalance of real information or where's the PSA, right? And so those are things that are um, sometimes beyond our scope at Spark, but we think are really important. And so in terms of Stalking Awareness Month and our role in it, we're really, again, trying to provide materials that folks like y'all listening to the podcast can share with your networks to help um, enhance awareness and enhance the response. And so we have daily social media posts that you can share. They're already on our website, or you can just share them directly from, you know, reshare them on, uh, on Twitter or what have you. Um, we have pledges that folks can take. We have programs that you can lead. So if you do any kind of awareness education, we have standalone programs with scripts and slides and videos that you can pick up and lead as like a lunch and learn or a campus program. We have discussion guides on all four seasons of the TV show You on Netflix. Um, so folks can talk about media normalization and, and talk about stalking that way as well. Um, we have just we have fact sheets, we have infographics, we have, you know, anything from to help you table to do a real uh, substantive event, right? And of course, we're trying to drive people to our website because we have so much content there. And we, while we don't provide direct services to victims, we do provide, hey, here's where victims should should go. And so we want to make sure that folks are thinking, huh, stalking. Yeah, that is a serious thing. And I will say that the more you talk about stalking, the more other folks kind of come out of the woodwork and disclose this. And I've certainly experienced that personally and professionally where everyone, oh, that happened to me, actually, or, oh, was that stalking? Ooh, that happened to my friend. And I think that we're ready for that conversation. And the way it will happen is by more people bringing it up, right, and naming stalking and saying this is unacceptable um, and integrating that kind of attitude into conversations that are already happening on into partner and sexual violence. And so 
I guess with what we're hoping for is that we see you know, more awareness generally, that folks are thinking about stalking in a different way, that people are reflecting on their current response to stalking and thinking, huh, how, what are some ways that I could actually enhance my response? Um, so we have checklists on our website actually to that effect for victim service agencies, law enforcement and campuses, but just like a list of questions to go through. So we'd love to see folks, you know, like if you want to be the most popular person at your next staff meeting, uh, go through that and just think about ways to enhance the response. And some are pretty low hanging fruit. Like is the word stalking on your website? Do you screen all victims for stalking? Um, and then some are more involved, right? Do you, like, does your shelter have a clear policy on if folks being stalked by non-intimate partner can come into shelter, right? Because actually most stalking's not intimate partner and those folks still kind of get funneled to the domestic violence agency. And so, you know, some are lower, but even some of those lower hanging fruit things are actually quite powerful, um, I would argue. And so, yeah, I feel like I was a little rambly here, but um, <laughs> it's, a, it's important for really variety. Helpful. Those are really yeah. helpful examples of especially kind of what um, advocacy organizations can do within their services to address the issue of stalking. Yeah, and also to let folks know that you are the ones addressing this issue because it's not intuitive. If I'm being stalked by, say, an estranged friend and there was never a sexual relationship, I'm probably not going to pick up the phone and call family violence services. That's not very intuitive, but that's where folks like you are often housed who can help me, right? And so it's also, it's of course, providing the response and having the resources and reaching victims and survivors and letting them know that this is where to come for this locally, right? And so I think both of those things are really important. Absolutely. So this is the 20th anniversary of the National Stalking Awareness Month. And I love talking about the history of the movement because when we reflect on how far we've come in a short amount of time, I think it really inspires how far we can go in the future. So can you give us a little bit of history of NSAM um, and where it came from and how it came to be? Yeah, absolutely. So now just talking awareness month, like you said, this is the 20th annual um, and it's in January. And the reason it's in January is because there's a really amazing activist who we work with, uh, Debbie Riddle, whose sister, Peggy Clinky, was murdered by her stalker in January. And Peggy had, there's a very powerful video about it that we use for training. Um, I definitely encourage you to learn more about Peggy's story. But Peggy had reported the stalking, had relocated, had documented everything, had really done everything right. And everyone knew that this was coming. And the offender, Patrick Kennedy, still managed to find her at a new home and kill her. And so her sister, Debbie Riddle, was really inspired, of course, grieving, but also really inspired to do something about this, that, you know, we have to change this, that this should not be the response. And so she worked with folks that it was at the National Center for Victims of Crime um, and helped to co-found National Stalking Awareness Month to increase awareness, to encourage training, to encourage dialogue on stalking. And so that's why it's in January. And that's why actually this year we're launching January 18th as the Day of Action for stalking awareness. And that's the anniversary of when Peggy was killed. Um, and so the campaign is really hearkening back to that history of, of the movement. Um, and so Debbie always says that her sister had like a sparkling personality and that, you know, would light up a room, but that as the stalking continued, we saw that shine fade. 
And so our idea for the day of action is to bring back that sparkle for Peggy and for all victims and survivors of stalking. So what we're asking folks to do is to wear something sparkly or take a picture with something shiny and to post that on social media that day um, with the hashtag sparkle against stalking and and Sam Day of Action, we have our on our website some samples and sample language, and of course more other actions to take. So, in addition to the awareness spreading from you know taking that picture, also maybe it's also take the pledge, maybe it's go through the checklist, maybe it's you know write a letter to the editor, etc. So we have all those other actions as well. Um, but you know this is the first time that we're doing that, and we're really excited about it because there hasn't been a day in that way and there isn't really a color sometimes folks ask like is there a stalking color i've seen silver i've seen yellow but we figured if we're going to create something new let's have something that the explanation has some meaning behind it right that if we're so it since it doesn't have that recognition you know we love the idea of um you know the sparkle right and so we hope that folks will do that right and we'll get other people to do that um and to make it something as iconic as that, you know, wear orange for teen dating violence or, you know, denim day or something like that um, to really get folks thinking about stalking and thinking about how they can better talk about stalking, incorporate stalking into their resources and for our general public, you know, to be critical of our media that normalizes stalking, to support friends um, and family who might be experiencing this and to demand a stronger response. So that that's where we're at with Stalking Awareness Month. And so uh, we're excited about it and also delighted because we still, you know, work closely with Debbie and we have other survivors involved as well. Um, and so, yeah, we hope to see a lot of posts. We're reaching out. We have a few celebrities on board we have, you know, so we're, we're excited, but everyone who does it's a celebrity to me. So <laughs> I'll definitely encourage y'all to do that uh, as well as get involved in the other ways this stocking wearing month and beyond. And it's one of those, I know January can be a tough month because it's after the holidays for campuses. They're often off for a lot of January. So, you know, the important thing is to do the activity. So of course we, January is the time that we're all hyper-focused on it, but feel free to do, do these uh, or have that be the time you make a commitment to inc incorporate stalking into your awareness education, for example, or to make sure that you're requesting a training from Spark. If you're thinking, oh, we have a lot of new staff. We haven't really been trained on stalking. Um, we're usually free of charge and can train you. So, you know, maybe it's it's time to make that commitment <laughs> to, to incorporate stalking all year round. Absolutely. And I think this is going to be a great year for stalking awareness. I'm really looking forward to the National Stalking Awareness Month this year. Um, as we're wrapping up here, is there anywhere that you would point listeners to to find more information about Spark? You mentioned the website, but you also have social media pages. There's so many resources on the website, first of all. And so we'll definitely include information about that in the show notes. But you all happen to have... Um, I think a very clever handle for your social media accounts. Do you want to talk about that? Um, and and <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Our point people to to find information about Spark. Yeah. So our um, our handle on Instagram and Twitter is at follow us legally. If you get our sick sense of humor at Spark, we will not report you. We want you to follow us. We're encouraging it. Um, you can also go to our website, stockingawareness.org. 
And we have, like you said, tons of resources, and those are broken down by discipline as well. So for you and your partner. So we have a section for victim services, for campuses, for awareness educators, for judicial officers, for prosecutors, for law enforcement, um, and so on. Uh, we also have fact sheets, infographics, documentation logs, like you mentioned, and just a lot of different, and as well as links to the risk assessment that I mentioned and other tools for better responding to stalking. Um, we also have a newsletter that you can sign up for on our website. And, you know, I joke as an anti-stalking organization, we will not contact you excessively or without your consent. So you have to actually opt into our newsletter. It's not one we send a ton. It's one we send around quarterly to announce upcoming webinars, et cetera. Um, on our website, we also have an archive of recorded webinars. I got us to call it the Sparkives. So that was like the height of my career pretty much. Um, so if you're thinking, huh, I'd like to learn more about stalking, which hopefully you are. Um, there are a bunch of recorded webinars on there. And I'd suggest starting with Context is Key is our quarterly webinar we offer. That's a really great foundational training. And we always have more coming. So right now we're in the process of developing e-learning modules, um, other checklists. I mean, we're always looking for more to do to, to help you better do your work because we know it's not easy. So feel free to reach out anytime. And I just want to say, you know, I know it's easy for me to sit here on the podcast and say, well, you should really be doing this. And, you know, think about that and use this tool. But you're the ones actually on the ground keeping victims safe and holding offenders accountable. It is all easier said than done. And I understand that and respect that. So truly thank you for the work that you do and for your attention to stalking in this issue. Um, you're the ones really making the difference. And so if we can help you at all, please don't hesitate to reach out. And yeah, definitely do check out our website and socials to see what we might already have that might help you enhance your work. Well, I cannot end this conversation without asking you about your Spotify playlist. Um, I think that humor, and you've already kind of alluded to this, humor plays such an important role in this work. And I think sustains us as we are doing this really kind of trauma-filled work. Um, to, a sense of humor can really bring some levity and, re and resilience to our work. Um, and I heard that you have this Spotify playlist that you use um, during trainings. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah, so I do. It's available on our website as well. We have a Spotify playlist that is all songs that normalize stalking in some way. Um, and so it includes a whole range of genres. We're always looking to add to it. So I'm sure it's not comprehensive, but I always play use that playlist when folks are coming into the room. Um, and then it breaks and it kind of helps to talk about the normalization of stalking. And so, you know, everything from people think of the classic, um, oh, the Sting song, the... Um, is it every breath you take? Yeah, every breath you take, right. But it's so much more than that. Um, really, if you listen to a lot of the lyrics from different songs, um, from different eras, and really everything from, you know, um, I Will Follow Him, which you might remember from Sister Act, mm -hmm. all the way up to, like, this year, one of the most popular year, year uh, songs was Kill Bill, in which they talk about stalking and killing an ex. Um, there's such a range and it's interesting and it's fun. And I always say with media literacy generally, like some of these songs are bangers. Like it's fine if you like the song, right? It's just to also recognize that, okay, there's a cumulative effect to this misinformation. Um, and so, yeah, I think that in media literacy generally and looking at this, you know, the playlist and songs that we might have heard a billion times and never really listened to can be a really fun way to start thinking about how is stalking normalized and what behaviors are being presented here as romantic or cute or just, oh, well, they're just sad. So they had to do that, you know, um, that maybe 
aren't. <laughs> they maybe aren't normal. So yeah, and we we do use a lot of humor in our trainings. We use a lot of humor in our resources when appropriate, right? Because it is a heavy topic. And, you know, we always want to think about we're punching up, not down. Like stalking is not funny. Um, but <laughs> there are there there is humor to be had in educating on this issue. And so we think that's important for everyone. And yeah, definitely check out the stalking playlist um, and let me know if you have additions. I often on the road get new ones and I'm very particular about it though, because if it's just someone saying like they want to be creepy or they're kind of obsessed with someone, I'm like, that doesn't count. They have to actually be engaging in the behavior or making a threat in the song. Um, this playlist is still like three hours long. So there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of those. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm quite particular about what makes the cut, uh, but I always like seeing those suggestions and it's grown over the years. So feel free to reach out with those. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that it's so well curated. Um, with that, any final thoughts that you wanted to share about Stalking Awareness, Spark, or the National Stalking Awareness Month coming up in January? I think I would just say, you know, and I, re I really appreciate having the time to talk and focus on stalking and I just encourage folks to just reflect, you know, we talk about, you know, learn, teach, share, reflect, right? So to take some time to learn about stalking, to if you, when you feel that you have some, you don't need to be an expert on stalking to talk about stalking. We need everyone talking about this, right? But it takes some time to educate yourself um, on this issue, on the prevalence, on some of the dynamics, to teach about it, to integrate it into the education you're already doing, to do that kind of informal teaching where maybe it's just, again, having the brochures or the posters up, which are free on our website to order, or maybe it's, you know, and we have also guidance on our website to incorporate stalking into awareness education if you don't have time for a whole standalone program, um, or maybe it's just sharing some of our social media posts, right? But getting folks educated on stalking to share information. So share that information, share the urgency to, you know, participate in the day of action and post that picture and share that, hey, this is something real that we care about. And to let folks know we see this, you know, in our work, like we know we have victims here who are experiencing this. This is not a problem somewhere else. This is a problem with the survivors here uh, that we want to elevate. Um, <laughs> and to and to reflect, to reflect on, you know, your response um, to reflect on the media we consume. And we have some more actionable pieces of that. Like there's a pledge that folks can take as part of an activity. There is um, you can write a letter to the editor to put something in your newsletter, to write a blurb in there. We have language you can copy and paste. So really just to spread the word. And there's ways to do that that are a lot of work in ways that aren't that much work, right? But really anything that you can do to elevate this issue goes a long way. And I can tell you from the survivors that we work with, it's very meaningful to them um, as well, because this issue so often fades into the background. And that's another reason that we're excited to be featuring this idea of sparkle against stalking that so often it's, oh yeah, and stalking, it's kind of in the background. We, we kind of deal with that too. So I think it's really important to have a time that's putting that front and center and saying, actually, this is the focus today. And it deserves our focus because it is criminal, traumatic, and dangerous because it is as prevalent as those other victimizations and because it's severely under-resourced and our victims and survivors need us to say something about this uh, and to really be working to have a better response and, and decrease the amount of stalking. So I really appreciate any and all efforts to do so. Uh, and we do have a landing page on our website for Stalking Awareness Month. You can use anything. So 
you can, if you want to throw your logo on people, some people ask, oh, can we use this? Can we put our logo on it? Go for it. That's what it's there for. Um, so yeah, anything that you can all do, we, we super appreciate. Well, I so appreciate all the support that you have available to victim service providers. It's so, so helpful. I cannot wait to see all the sparkle turn out on January 18th this year. It's going to be amazing. And Dana, I just want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been a wealth of information, and I'm just so happy that you are here to share that wealth of information on Momentum for Change. And listeners, thank you for tuning in today as well. And MOCUDSV is really looking forward to season three of Momentum for Change and sharing some great conversations with you related to this work. So thank you all. Thank you for joining us. This has been a recorded conversation now available in both video and podcast formats. A video recording of this episode is available on the MOCADSV YouTube channel under the Momentum for Change playlist. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel in order to receive new episodes in your YouTube feed. You can also find all of our Momentum for Change episodes available to stream on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Momentum for Change is a podcast produced by MOCADSV with post-production support provided by Tim Stillings and promotion by Adrian Maddox. Again, I am your host, Nora Mosby, and we appreciate you joining us for this episode. Thank you again, and we look forward to seeing you next month.